Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. We've got a crew to lead us in our scripture reading for today. So you guys, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Y'all can follow along as uh, Ella Youssef and company lead us in the reading of God's Word. This morning scripture is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth or rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp for the body. So if you are, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If you, the then the light in you is darkness how great is the darkness on one no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted in one, the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money this is the word of the lord Amen. thanks be to god Great job, ladies. Well, the Sermon on the Mount has always been, um, it's one of the most interesting passages of Scripture for me. It's one of those passages, obviously, that I've read dozens of times, you know, maybe a hundred or more times. And it always gets me. It always strikes me. It it always has this way of, of really piercing me. A few weeks ago, um, our pastor's school, this term, their, their class is on preaching, and they preached their first sermon a few weeks ago, and all of the sermons that we chose for them were from the Sermon on the Mount. They were, there's their New Testament sermon. They all preach from the Sermon on the Mount. I remember thinking to myself, well, you know, going into this, I'll listen to these young guys, they're preaching, and maybe offer some critique. Um, and I was amazed as I sat there listening to them preach how convicted I was just, just hearing the Word of God preached as I was trying to be a critique, a critic of their preaching. God was just even piercing my heart with, with his words, uh, with these words, with this sermon. Um, and of course, again, this is what the word of God does because it's alive, because it's transcendent. It, 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 it lifts above space and time and event, uh, and it speaks to us. And I pray that these words will speak to us today. Particularly the Sermon on the Mount, though, is it's a response to salvation. If you're really saved, if you've really come into the kingdom of God, if you've really known God in Christ, then this. Then this is how you are to live. Then this is how you are to understand the world. This is, this is who you are to be. The, the sermon instructs us on what is the kingdom ethic. What is the kingdom of Christ way of life? And particularly with this passage today, we're looking at what does the kingdom say about money? How, how do we, as kingdom citizens, as citizens in the kingdom of Christ, how do we think about money? Now, it's interesting. Jesus actually, throughout his ministry, talks a lot about money and finances. It's, it's the second uh, most frequent subject, just 
after uh, what he says about the kingdom of God. And our pursuit of money and our love of money, our use of money, tells so much of who we are. It really speaks to, to who we are, what we treasure, what we love, uh, who we are as, as a person. And so today I want to look, as we consider this passage that Ella read, I just want to look at three things with you that I think are incredibly instructive for us. First of all, the power of money. Secondly, the weakness of money. And then lastly, the, the way of money. The, the power of money, the weakness of money, and the way of money. This, this uh, sermon comes within a larger context. The next three weeks, just kind of even leading up to Thanksgiving, we want to be thinking about generosity and, and how we respond to all that God has given us. But let's uh, begin with the power of money. Um, you know, a lot of the Sermon on the Mount is about what you are trusting in. What is your faith really in? Or you could say who you really are, not just what you appear to be, but who you really are. If, if Just go back to the beginning of chapter six with me. Uh, some of your Bibles, like mine, has these headings. So like the, the first heading for mine says, giving to the needy. Uh, and the basic exhortation um, here, it's all about giving to the needy. Uh, but the basic exhortation of this passage is give to the needy in secret, right? Everybody wants to be seen as generous. Everybody wants to be known outwardly as someone who has a concern for others. But Jesus says here, give in such a way as to where you don't get that reward. Give in secret. Trust that your Father in heaven sees you. Trust that God is pleased by these things. And that's where your real reward is. The next passage in my Bible, it, it's um, the subtitle there is prayer. These aren't biblical things, little headings your Bible gives you, but they are helpful. And again, the same thing. It says, don't be worried about who sees you praying, right? Everybody is impressed. Somebody stands up, delivers a beautiful prayer before, to, to the Lord before a group of people. Everybody's impressed by that. Uh, we all think, man, that guy really knows the Lord. That guy, he must be a very righteous person. But this is saying, be careful how you pray. Pray in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. As it keeps going, the next passage is on fasting. Again, fasting is one of those things that we do. And people think, man, that guy, he fasts. I mean, he loves God so much. But again, here's the exhortation. When you're fasting, don't, don't let anybody know you're fasting. You know, don't, uh, don't schedule lunches on fast days. So you have to say, I'm fasting today. You know, it says, don't let anybody know when you're fasting. He actually says, you know, make yourself look a little better. You know, clean yourself up a little bit because God who sees in secret will reward you. What are you trusting in? Who are you? Are you trusting in your outward appearance? Are you trusting in what everybody else sees? Or are you trusting in what God sees? And, and I think that, you could ask this big question, what is it that has control of your life? What is it that you really have faith in? This is the kind of language that's used in this passage. Does money have control of your life or does God have control of your life? Are you trusting more in your money to take care of you or are you trusting in God to take care of you? What are you trusting in? What has control of you? Now, Here's the deal. I know how all of you would answer this question today, right? We're in church. You know we're in church, right? So if I run around and said, are you trusting in God more? Are you trusting in money more? You would all be like, I know the answer is God, right? And, and you probably think that in your heart, the answer is God. 
And that's where I think this passage can be really, really helpful. Money has more power than I think we give it credit. Um, let me give you an illustration, and, and this is a big illustration, but, but I think it's helpful. You ever wonder why um, the, the citizens of North Korea, you ever like watch the news over there? You ever keep up with what's going on in North Korea? And, and you just hear about the horrid conditions and how these people are treated with just no dignity and no concern and how the Kim family just keeps these 25 million souls in bondage. And you know, it's easy to watch the news and read about North Korea and think, why don't the people revolt, right? Have you ever thought that? Here's a, why don't the people do something? Why don't the people fight back? Why don't the people try to overpower uh, the Kim family in North Korea? And the, the answer is, is because, of course, the Kim family has total control and, and the people don't even know how bad they have it. The people don't even realize that there, there's no freedom of the press, right? There, there's no freedom of expression. Somebody starts an uprising, they're immediately squashed. And so a lot of people over there in North Korea believe we've got it okay. And actually, it's the Kim family that's taking care of us. That's the messaging, right? The Kim family is total control of the media. And so they'll say, you know, the outside world is a dangerous place. We are protecting you from these evil nations, especially the nations in the West. You need us. You need us to care for you. We are taking care for you. And so these 25 million people are trusting a dictator that is really only harming them. And, and again, this may, you may think that's a little extreme, but I, I just want to say in this material world that we live in, the message of the material world, the message of success that says, you need me, without me, you're not, you're, without me, you're not safe. Without me, you're nothing. Without me, everybody will creep in and harm you and take you down. That message in this material world is as constant as the messaging in North Korea is about how good the Kim family is. This is the message that you hear all the time that is surrounding you. And money has a way of saying to, to you and to me, you need me. You need me. If you want to be someone, you need me. If you want to be secure, you need me. If you, if you want people to listen to you, you need me. If you want your life to be easy, you need me. You know, an idol, and we've talked about this before, but it's anything in your life that has the ultimate place. What is an idol? It's anything that has the ultimate place. If you kind of thought, well, is an idol like a little graven image? No, no, it's anything that, that takes the place of God. It's, it's anything in your life that's ultimate. And it could be a bad thing. You, you could idolize some things that are incredibly harmful, incredibly bad. But an idol actually could be a really good thing that you've just made an ultimate thing. You've just made central in your life. You know, money, as we're actually going to look later in the sermon, can be a really good thing, can be used for many, many good and great things. But if it becomes an ultimate thing, if it becomes central in your life, it becomes your rest, well, that's when it gets really dangerous. And, you know, of all idols out there, money is one that may be the most powerful. It's one of the most inviting. After all, money fixes a lot of things. Let's be honest. You know, even Ecclesiastes, the author of Ecclesiastes says, a feast is made for laughter, wine gladdens the heart, and money answers everything. Right? I mean, money solves a lot of problems. Money does make things easier. It's it's a good thing. It, it, it make you feel so powerful. But it can easily become an ultimate thing in our lives. It can easily become controlling in your life. 
you know, the uh, English translations of the passage that uh, Ella read for us, um, they switch a word up, and I, I, I don't think that they should. Um, unless you're reading from the King James, you, you may miss this. But the last little part there about serving two masters in verse 24, it actually, if you go back to the translation, it doesn't say God and money. It says God and mammon. Some of y'all may have heard that. If you've been around church, this, this, the King James actually here uh, you know, has that translation, God and mammon. Mammon was a god of Carthage. It was the, the god that personified money. It was the, the god of money. It was the god of success. This idea of money personified. And mammon, like every god, like every dictator, wants to control you. It wants to grab your attention. And again, like every dictator, like every god, it starts off with a promise, right? I'll take care of you. I'll serve you. Just, just do this for me, and I'll serve you. I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. And, and, and just as so many things do, those things that start off with those kinds of promises end up grabbing more and more and more and more control of our heart, and rather than them serving us, we end up serving them. And, and when money begins to take control of your life, when mammon can, takes control of your life, it can lead you to do a lot of things that you never thought you would do. You know, mammon has a way of leading people to neglect the people that they love. You know, how, how many people neglect their most important relationships, their relationship with their spouse, their relationship with their children, because of the pursuit of money? And I would just ask you that question. You know, when was the last time you said no to something lucrative? Because it, it pulled you away of an important relationship, pulled you away of an opportunity with a child, opportunity with your spouse. It's easy to justify. Well, I'm going to say yes here, but then I'm going to make it up to you there. Mammon has a way of doing that, grabbing your heart, grabbing your attention away from the things that you say are most valuable. Mammon has a way of leading you to be dishonest, of leading you to steal. And everybody I know that, that, has, that has gotten in trouble for stealing or for mismanaging money, you know, it always starts off with this little thing, right? So it's always this little, little thing. They're going to pay it back and it'll be okay. But then they get that mammon and it starts to serve them and they, get, they just want a little more of it. And that was pretty easy. The next thing you know, they're controlled. The ruler is dictating their heart. Mammon has this way of leading you to not be true to yourself. I mentioned a few months ago that I'd read Moby's recent book, uh, Moby the Musical Artist. It's called Then It All Fell Apart. And Moby, he you know, tells this story about writing his first big album, Play. Um, but he was old. He was kind of on into his career. And he said, you know, I did music. I'd done music for years and years and years. He was in his 30s when he wrote the album. I did music for years and years and years. And I just loved music. I never really cared if I was successful. I just loved the music. I just did music because I loved the music. I didn't care about the success. And then he wrote an album that sold 12 million copies. He says, and then I got successful. And then I didn't love music so much. What I really loved was success. And all of a sudden, rather than just making music because I loved it, I started making music because I just wanted to keep the success going. I, I had been in, he wasn't careful, and, and all of a sudden, mammon had taken control of his heart. And one more, mammon will lead you to, to rob God. You know, God has put this incredible portion in place, this incredible principle in place that we would give to him a portion of what he has given us. And there's a lot of reasons God did this, right? One of those is that he, God uses these resources to advance his kingdom uh, through his people. He advances his work on earth. 
But the more important reason that God's given us this command, and I, and I, I never want this to be missed here, the more important reason that God has, has commanded his people to be generous is so that we would remember that everything we have comes from him, that he is sovereign, that he is in control. That money is not all-powerful. That God is. And, and just the act of giving to the Lord and giving your first fruits to the Lord is an incredible reminder. It's a statement that money doesn't rule in your life. And I just want to say this. So many of you struggle to be generous to the things of the Lord because money rules in your life. You trust it more than you trust God. Money says, serve me. I will protect you. I will make you happy. Spend all your money on yourselves and you'll be happy. And that's so powerful. That's such a controlling message. It can lead you to not be true to yourself. It can lead you to be dishonest and to steal. It can lead you to be pulled away from the things that are most important. It can even lead you to rob God. That's the power of money. But the second thing I want to look at today is the weakness of money. You know, as, as good as money is, as powerful as it can be, it has some glaring weaknesses about it. There's an old story about uh, a professor named Addison Leach. Addison Leach, some of y'all may know the name Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, Addison Leach was married to Elizabeth Elliot, but he actually he died. Um, like Elizabeth Elliot's first husband, Jim Elliot died. Addison Leach died of cancer. But anyway, he was a professor, and um, he tells this story about these, these kids that came to faith in Christ when they were in college. They came to know the Lord, and they felt called to be missionaries. And so it was Christmas break. They went home, and they went and told their parents, Mom, Dad, I, wanna, I feel called to be a missionary. I want to go be a missionary. And you know what the parents said? These kids had just come to know the Lord. They wanted to go be missionaries. You know what the parents said? They said, look, sweetheart, yeah, you've obviously had a religious experience. That's good. But you know what you really need to do is finish college and then get a master's degree. And you'll be able to get a job and get a job for a few years and you can save up some money and you'll get a good resume going. And then, you know, after you're into your career a little bit, then we can talk about this whole missions work. And so they went back and they told Addison Leach what their parents had said. They said, you know, this is what our parents said. And he said, well, here's what I'd tell your parents. We're on a little ball of rock that's spinning through space called Earth. And who knows if it's going to run into something. And even if it doesn't, someday under each of us, there's going to open a trap door and everyone's going to fall off. In your life one day, a door is going to open and it's going to be over. And Edison Leach said, at the bottom of that door is going to be the everlasting arms of God or nothing at all. And you think a master's degree is going to give you some security? The point I'm trying to make here is that as wonderful as success and education and money, as wonderful these things are, they all have their limits. I gave this uh, illustration a couple years ago, um, but it, I think it was before we even launched, and so I figured it, it was old enough to bring back around. But uh, there's this spaceship uh, called Voyager 1. It took off in 1977. It's now 13.7 billion miles away from Earth. We launched in 1977. 13.7 billion miles away. Um, and uh, a lot of it actually doesn't even work anymore, but it's hard to get a repair guy out there uh, to fix it. Uh, but some of it, some of it still works. Um, but anyway, 
in, in I think it was 1990 when it was only 3.7 billion miles uh, away from Earth, so 10 billion miles ago. It turned around and it took this picture of the Earth. Do we have this? There's no way to like drop these lights, is there, chaps? Can, you, can we do that? Maybe we can. I've showed you this before, but it's, it's, a, it's this famous picture called the pale blue dot, right? And you see the little pale blue dot here, the four pixels in the middle of the picture. It's taken from 13.7 billion miles away from Earth. Carl Sagan, in an essay right after this was uh, taken, he wrote this about that picture. He said, look at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregation of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, Every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species has lived there on that mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. And if that's Earth, if that's all that Earth is, then what is your bank account? What is your 401k? What is your nice four-bedroom house? It's nothing. It's so small. It's so insignificant. You know, money can solve a lot of problems. But I want you to hear this. Money cannot stand in the day of the Lord. And Jesus talked about this all over, over, over and over again. Money cannot stand in the, in the day of the Lord. In fact, he even said this, that it, it's with only with difficulty that a rich person can come into the kingdom of God, can actually know God, can actually fall into the everlasting arms of God. He says it's actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. Why? It's because when you start accumulating money, it has this way of controlling you, of grabbing you. It can serve you well for 50 or 60 years, but it cannot stand in the day of the Lord. And so I just want to warn you with this, fellow well-educated, well-to-do friends. This should kind of terrify you. Now you might say, well, I'm glad he's preaching this to all these the other rich people out there. And I just want to say, no one thinks they're rich, but you're all rich. Every person in this room is in, the, in terms of global wealth, you're, you're top five, and most of you top one or two percent of global wealth in the whole world. And I'm talking about the people that are just getting started. In their, I'm talking to the young people that are just getting started with your several tens of thousands of dollars a year job. Among the population of the whole world, you are doing really, really, really well. And it is so easy for mammon to grab your heart. And you cannot serve two masters. Money will not stand on the last day. Now, but this text is saying actually that money can't even stand on a lot of days. <laughs> you get awesome stuff. It's going to make you so happy. And what happens? Moths eat it. And rust destroy it. And thieves steal it. This is not in the text. But you know what my bigger problem is? is or I lose it, you know. 
or I break it. You know how much stuff I've lost? You know how many times I like buy that, not, like a great pair of sunglasses or something stupid like that? And I'm just like, so, they're so cool. You know, you try them on, you look in the mirror at the store, and you're like, man, people are going to think Jason D's, he is someone. And then the next week, I mean, they're gone. I lose them. And it's just almost like God saying like, yeah, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth. Moth and rust destroy them, thieves steal them, you lose them. You know, the best way, if, if, I think this, if Jesus was preaching this passage today in kind of our current economy, he could say, look, imagine two stocks, okay? Imagine two companies that you can invest in, two stocks you can buy. One, it's, it's going to last forever. The company is going to last forever. It's always going to be profitable. In fact, it's going to be incredibly profitable. Put some money in there. It may, not, may be some times where it doesn't look great at first, but trust me, in the end, this company is going to be so profitable, and it's going to be profitable forever. The other, there might be some immediate gains in this company, but I'm telling you, this company will go bankrupt. This company is going, you're going to lose everything that you invest in this company. Okay. Which one would you invest in? That's really what Jesus is saying here. What's the better? And you can't, you can't sell. You can't sell. Once you invest the money, you got to hold it in there. Which is a better investment here? The company that's going to go belly up or the company that's going to return for you forever and forever? So we've looked at the power of money, the weakness of money, but finally I want us to consider the way of money. You know, when you begin to see your life as God's, you begin to understand this idea of stewardship. And a lot of times stewardship in terms of like church kind of circles, people think, well, that's synonymous with giving. This, really the word stewardship means more than that. It's a, it's a great word. It's, it's management, right? Are you a good steward of the things that God has given you? And stewardship in the Christian life applies to so much more than money. Are, are you stewarding your time well? Are you stewarding the gifts and talents that God's given you well? Are you stewarding the responsibilities that God has given you well, right? You know, are you doing a good job with your work? There's a lot of applications. There's a lot of uh, areas to understand this idea of stewardship. But in terms of money, how are you managing the resources that God has given you to manage? Are you using what God has given you in a way that pleases him? And I think it's important to just stop for just a second and even talk about why God has given us money in the first place. And there's a lot of different things, and I could do a whole sermon on this, but very quickly, first, and I want you to hear this, God has given you resources to care for you, right? So, so part of the reason God has given you um, money is to, to bring you care so you can take care of yourself. One of the things that Christians have traditionally done um, at meals, and I hope you do this, a great practice is just to pause and pray. To thank God for the meal. It's just a recognition that God has provided this, right? We paid money for this meal, but God is actually the one that is providing these things for us. God has given us money so that we can be cared for, so that we can be taken care of. Again, we see this throughout the Bible. A couple of New Testament passages. The laborer should be worthy of his wages, 1 Timothy 5.18. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat, right? So there's this principle in place. As we work, as we're productive, as we use the gifts that God has given us, well, then God meets our needs. He cares for us, and, and he uses this tool of money to do that. The second, One of the second reasons God gave us money is to care for others. Clearly in the Bible, again, there's an overarching narrative that we would be concerned 
about the well-being of the of others. Particularly in Scripture, we see passages about the concern for the poor, for the needy among us. Um, we see this clearly throughout the ministry of Jesus. We see this in the early church. We see this um, the church using money in a good way to care for one another. And third, one of the third reasons that God has given us money is so that we can fill the earth. And this is the amazing thing um, just about how we use and how we steward our money well. If you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, what did God do? He put Adam in a garden. He gave him a lot of raw materials. He had the raw material of seed. He had the raw material of water. He had the raw material of fertilizer, right? And and what did he do? He, He went into that garden. He took all of these raw materials and he made a fruitful and a productive garden. And that was how Adam was using the gifts that God had given him to fill the earth. Again, as that developed, eventually uh, we figured out how to use the, the, the feed that we were growing, the plants that we were growing to, to gather livestock and care for them. Eventually people started trading. Eventually people opened up stores. Eventually those stores grew into uh, houses and stores and villages and cities. And it's just amazing how we've just developed this whole culture and this whole world. These are really good things. This is a command that God has given us to, to fill the earth and to have dominion over the things that God has made. And of course, eventually we created an economy and uh, we can use money here to build cities and to care for people and to communicate and to train people. And, and all of this filling is happening. So that's a good stewardship, a good management of money. This is also how the church works, right? When, when we give and we pool our money, we're saying, okay, how can we with these resources best do the ministry that God's given us to do? So one of the reasons that you give, obviously we give because we love God, but I hope you give also to some degree because you love one another, because you love children, for example, and you want us to have a faithful children's ministry. And so we need leadership to do that because you love other people within this body. You don't want to see divorces end in, or marriages end in divorce. You don't want to see um, you know, people that are struggling with anxiety all the time. And so we've gotten together the resource of a biblical counselor who's putting together a biblical counseling center. Uh, you want to see uh, facilities that we can use, like this facility and, and our uh, collective. You want to see the nations being reached. You want to see churches being planted, people being trained for gospel ministry, and so forth and so on. So we've, we've together said, okay, how can we create a good economy, if you will, of church work? This is partly the way that money is used. It is stewarded for good. So again, money can be a good thing. Money, when it is stewarded rightly, can be a great thing. But I want to close with, with this. A couple of thoughts on, on how then we can keep this good thing from becoming an idol. How can we keep money from controlling us? How can we keep our confidence from resting in money? And again, this is very important for rich people like you and me in this world. Money is a good thing, but it's very dangerous. So how do you keep it from controlling you? And uh, again, this is where the passage is so helpful. And there's two things that I want to look at with you um, as we kind of wrap things up. First of all, your eye. Your eye. There's this interesting section. Look at verse 22 with me. Interesting section in the middle of the passage about the eye. It says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, what does that mean? When we were reading the passage, when Ella was reading the passage earlier, did that strike you as kind of interesting? You have this 
Interesting passage. You know, don't serve yourself treasures on earth, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Then you have this, you can't serve God in money. But in the middle, it's this weird passage about your eye being healthy. What does that have anything to do with money? And here's what, it, here's what Jesus is saying here. A healthy eye is about at least two things, but the first is, is having the right perspective. Are you seeing the world rightly? Do you have a healthy eye? Are you seeing what's really valuable? If you're putting more faith in money than in God, you're in the darkness. You're foolish. You're blind. That makes absolutely no sense. And ultimately, that decision is incredibly costly. Are you seeing your money rightly? Are you realizing that your money is a gift from God? Are you seeing it as God sees it? I once read recently, um, this is kind of a leadership principle or decision-making principle, but the the principle of tens. Uh, And here's what it says. Before you make a decision, ask yourself, how's this decision going to feel in 10 minutes, in 10 days, and in 10 years? Okay. It's a good principle, right? But in Christianity, we can really add... (laughs) You know, another 10 to that. You know, how's it going to feel in 10,000 years, right? If you're really in God, if, if your identity is truly in Christ and in his eternal kingdom, then are the decisions that you're making today, are they going to feel good in 10 minutes, in 10 days? But what about in 10,000 years? Are, are, they really, are they really going to be valuable then? So do you have a good eye? Do you have the right perspective? If when God, are you seeing things as God would see them? Would God be pleased with how you're managing your money? But the second thing I think having a good eye is about is, is having some accountability. Is there any light in your life, right? Is there any light in your life? Um, you know, money is an interesting thing. Um, nobody, people are very secretive about their money, and I understand that. But, but being secretive about anything in life can be very dangerous, right? Being secretive about anything in life can lead you to have some blind spots in life. And money is one of those things that I think a lot of people have a lot of blind spots. And, and again, people, are, when I'm talking about secretive, spouses don't even share their financial situation with each other. I'm talking like really secretive, really personal. And I'm not talking about giving to be seen or talking about your money in a way to be seen. I'm talking about is there anyone to check your blind spot? Is this an area where you're in the darkness? Because greed is one of those sins that's sneaky. It's hard to see. You know, you, you can't have an affair and not know it, right? You know, you can't be like, oh, you're not my wife? You know, I, I you know, you can't murder someone and not know it, right? I mean, you, you, you know that there's, you know, there's a lot of sins that are pretty, pretty obvious, but, but greed is harder to see. I think that's what this passage is saying. A lot of people are in the darkness about this. They can go on their whole life and be greedy and be in the darkness and not, not have an eye, not have a good eye toward their wealth. You know, I read this week a story of a guy named Robert Kane who was actually disciplined, this was in Boston in 1635, he was disciplined by his church in Boston for the sin of greed. Now he wasn't stealing, 
he was charging too much. Um, they had kind of decided that a good principle for charging others was 4%, and he was charging 6% for his products. Now, I'm not trying to tell you you can't charge more than 6% for, or 4% for your products. What I am saying is there was at least the question being asked in that context, in that church. And we're not going to get into your business dealings here. That's not what I'm saying. But, but is, is anyone looking in? Is there anybody in your life that can say, hey, you know what, you probably don't need that. <laughs> is this something that comes up in your accountability? Is there anyone that's saying, you know, that you're saying, hey, this is my giving plan for this year. What do you think? Is it, is it too stingy or is it generous? Is there, is there anyone that you're having these conversations with? Is there anyone that can peer in? Yeah, do you even have, you know, one of the things is, do you even have any financial goals? That, that's a form of accountability. Just write a number down and say, I want to save this much money this year. I want to give this much money this year. Do you even have that? Or is your financial life totally haphazard? Do you have a good eye? Are you seeing things rightly? Or are you in the dark? You know, and, and one of the reasons we're talking about this, this is a great time to be thinking about finances. It's the end of a year, beginning of a new year. It's a great time to be putting some goals in place, some plans in place, to be creating a plan. And I just want to encourage you to have a good eye in these things, to have a plan, to not get to the end and, and, and have great regret. I was having a conversation recently with some, some friends of mine that didn't really start saving for retirement until they were in their 50s, okay? They were in their 50s, and, and that's when they really got serious about retirement. And you know what? Look, you kind of, I mean, you kind of get it a little bit. You know, they were, they were young, they didn't have any money, then they started having kids, and kids are crazy expensive, and you're spending money on them, you're trying to do college and all this, and finally you get to your 50s and you're like, oh gosh. But at the same time, as compassionate as we want to be there, I think most of us would say, how foolish. How foolish. Like they knew this would come. They, they knew that their body would start breaking down. They knew that they would have to retire somewhere. They missed out on so much, on so much return on their investment if they would have only started saving for retirement at a, at a decent pace, at a, at a more decent age. And, you know, I, I hate to say that I think a lot of you probably are going to see God someday and think, man, I was so foolish. I wasted so much money. I was so haphazard with how I gave, with how I invested in kingdom work. I never had a plan. I waited till I was so late. And there was, there's really, you know, I did a little bit, but there was very little return on what I gave. And you know, what's more, what's more important, the 20 years of retirement you're going to have or the 20,000 years of being in the presence of God? Do you have a good eye? Or has the light gone out? So we, we talked about the eye, but the last thing I want to talk about is the heart. I think in this passage, again, has been one of the most piercing passages for me. Matthew 6.21 for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Now, again, I've, I've said this to you guys before. I always thought, in fact, I've even preached this. I went back and I looked at a sermon that I preached about 10 years ago, and I preached this passage all wrong, right? So forgive me. Y'all, none of y'all were there. Maybe Paige. Sorry, babe. Um, but I always kind of thought this passage said, where your heart is, your treasure will be, Right? Look, if you, I think I preached, like, guys, if you really love the Lord, then of course you'll get invested in his kingdom. 
where your heart is, your treasure will be. And that, that's probably true, right? But that's actually not what the passage says. It says where your treasure is, your heart will be. It's not your heart leading your treasure. It's your treasure leading your heart. And you understand this principle. I mean, if, if anyone here has ever, you know, put $10 into a March Madness bracket, you understand where your treasure is, your heart will be, right? You care about the St. John's Old Dominion game like you never thought, you know? <laughs> Why? Because there's something on the line. You got treasure invested. Get in on this thing. You know, I, I, I think I've told this story before, but I was once talking to a friend of mine who went to Furman. But uh, he had sent three children, three of his children, to the University of Alabama. And we were talking about sports one day, and I said, man, you're an old Furman guy. You, breed, you bleed purple, right? And he said, no, crimson. I've spent too much money at the University of Alabama. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. The treasure leads the heart not the other way around. You know, one of my favorite theologians is a guy named John Owen. He's written a lot about the heart. And he, he, says, he said this. He said, the state of the heart is what gives one favor or disfavor in the sight of God. And that's true. This is what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. The state of the heart. That's what either gives you favor or disfavor in the sight of God. What is your heart? It's not what you appear to be. It's who you really are. This is what God sees. This is what God is looking at. But then Owen goes on. Listen to this. He said, but the heart is always placed upon the governing object of pursuit. If this be earthly, the heart will be given to earthly objects. If it be heavenly, the affections will be drawn heavenward. And what he's saying there is if all you're doing is investing your time, your money, and your energy on earthly things, that's what your heart's going to care about. That's, that's the state of your heart. That's who you're going to be. But if you get invested heavenly, in heavenly places, in, in heavenward objects, if you're invested into the kingdom with your wealth, with your time, with your energy, with your effort, then that's where your heart will be. And the state of the heart is what gives one favor or disfavor in the sight of God. The heart always follows the treasure. You don't want to know where your heart is? Where are you investing? So a great question. To not let money control us, how good is your eye and where is your heart? You know, the amazing thing about those of us who are redeemed in Christ, if you're a believer, if you're redeemed in Christ, if you know the Lord, if you're trusting in the grace of God, the, the only the only way that we have been redeemed, the way that we believe we have been redeemed is through the generosity of Jesus. You know, we're actually going to talk about this passage later in this series, but 2 Corinthians 8, this amazing passage where Paul is urging the people toward generosity and he says, look guys, why should you be generous? It's because you know the grace of Jesus who even though he was rich, he made himself poor. Jesus wasn't stingy with us. He gave us everything. He wasn't stingy with his blood, right? Jesus didn't say, well, just a little redemption for them. But if they sin too much, they're out. No, he said, man, I, I, I'm going to go and capture the whole of them. 
He gave himself, he gave everything. He was rich, but he made himself poor so that we in him could be rich. And if that's happened to you, that moves you, that changes you, that affects you. And one of our responses is, is generosity toward him. So I, I just pray that for our hearts. And uh, bow your heads with me as I do pray for these things. Father, I pray that we would be a generous church and that through our generosity, you would be able to do great things on earth. Uh, I pray for mission. I pray for ministry. I pray for church planting. I pray uh, for new ministries. I pray for all these things that we desire. But first and foremost, Lord, beyond what, what could happen and what, what you could do, Lord, through our resources, I I pray that our response, our desire to be generous would just be a, as a response of worship. That we would see your generosity and want to return that in, in kind. And so, Lord, I, I just pray that even now as we close, you would just focus our hearts on Jesus and his generous grace toward us. That our hearts and our minds would be with him. Focus us on him. Lord. We pray this in his name. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.